Well, good morning, everybody. I got a wave. All right, round two. Good morning, everybody. All right. Good. Good to see you guys this morning. If you're going to join us for Bible class, come on into the sanctuary and grab a seat. There's study guides in the typical spots. I'm going to go ahead and get us started by admitting our need for help and asking the Lord to help us today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you for gathering us together today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And, and in this hour before service, we are very, very grateful for the opportunity for additional study in Bible class. Lord, we, we are eager to know what you have said to us and to be shaped by your word. And at the same time, we confess that we are really in need of your help to see it, understand it, and apply it in our lives. And so, Lord, as we put in the work today of, of examining what your scriptures say about what forms the church, and we pray for your mercy on us. We pray that you would do a work to help us see and understand and, and be shaped by what you've said in your word. And so, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. In our fundamentals class here, we've been, we've been spending some time talking about the covenantal backbone of Scripture and about how our relationship with God and our relationships with one another are covenantal. And, and now for a stretch here, we're going to spend some time focusing in on our theology of the church for a few weeks. And naturally, it's, it's appropriate to begin by answering the question, what forms the church? What forms the church? Now, when I say what forms the church, um, primarily have in mind what generates the church, what creates or initiates or starts the church. How is the church created? What is the means that God uses to form his church? So in eternity past, in the covenant of redemption, God determined that there would be a church. We learned that, right? God determined that there would be a people and that they would be saved according to his sovereign will of decree. And, and that that infallible decree would certainly come to fruition. They would form, they would be a people, and they would not be lost. But God also decreed that in time, that church would, would come to be, and that there would be a means that he would use to accomplish that. How this happens, the means that God uses to create his church, is, is directly connected to how the, how the church is formed in another sense, in the sense of how it's molded or shaped after it's created, um, which we, we may elaborate on some today if we have time. But it's, it's the first sense that we're going to be concerned with today. How is the church initiated, started? That's what we're going to talk about. And I think it's, it's helpful to be thinking in two categories, maybe, maybe a two-step process or at least two categories when we think of how the church is formed. And so these, these categories are really... How is a Christian formed to begin with? How does, a, how does a Christian become a Christian? Which is the same as saying, how is the universal or the invisible church formed? Okay? And the second category or the second step that we'll, we'll touch on is, how is the visible or local church formed? So there's a way that these categories are inseparable. They're connected to each other in one sense, but they're not exactly the same. When you, have, when you have a universal church, you don't necessarily have a local church. Okay, so we've addressed this some already in this series, um, but it, may, it might be helpful just to quickly review that when the Bible talks about the church, it speaks of it in two different ways. So this, this English word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Okay, you can see this on your outline here, ekklesia. And, and what that means is assembly or gathering or congregation. Okay, an ecclesia is an assembly, and it comes from two Greek words: a word that means out from, and a word that means to call. Out from and to call. So, so the church comprises those who are called out and called together by God. Okay, you with me so far? That's an ecclesia. That's a gathering. Those who are called out and then called together by God. Okay? Now, the Bible speaks of two kinds of assemblies. Two kinds of assemblies. There's one in heaven, and then the other kind of assembly is seen in many on earth. 
So one in heaven, many on earth. And, and of course, I'm talking about universal church, invisible church, one in heaven, and local church, many on earth. So you can see an explanation here. Um, universal, invisible church is this. this. This is the heavenly and eschatological assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Jesus. When I say eschatological, I'm talking about, so in the future, when Christ establishes a new heavens and a new earth, we will be together with all of the believers from all time. Okay? That we, we don't know them all right now, right? We will be together. We will be assembled together with all believers from all time, worshiping Christ for eternity. So it's the heavenly and eschatological assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Jesus. This is the total body of believers whom God calls out from the world and into his eternal kingdom. This is all of the elect. All of the elect. When someone becomes a Christian, they are immediately and always will be part of this church. Okay? With me so far? When somebody becomes a Christian, when somebody is regenerate, they are immediately brought into this. They're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Let me look at just a, um, a couple of texts here. Turn to Ephesians 2. I put several references under this, and we're not going to look at them all this morning for the sake of time. They're there for you. You can be a good Berean and check it out. Okay. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even of the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And look what else he did. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When somebody's made a Christian, when somebody's born again, they're united with Christ, they're united with all of God's people, and in a very real sense, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Paul says in, in Colossians 3, to, to believers now who walk around here with flesh and bones, says, your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when he appears, you, you also will appear with him. So um, I don't know how this works, but that it works is explicitly clear in the scriptures. Yeah, that when somebody becomes a believer, they become part of this invisible, universal church. They are and always will be. They've already come to the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12. Okay, this is the church, Matthew 16, that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Okay, All right, then we have the local or the visible church, which, which we'll define as a present and earthly community of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and shepherd one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. And by that we mean baptism and the Lord's Supper. The universal church was not intended to be an abstract idea, but by design becomes visible and shows up in the local church. Okay? The universal church, by design, becomes visible and shows up in the local church. So they, they are connected to each other, they are inseparable in one sense, but the thing that forms the universal church has not yet formed the local church. And I'll talk about that a little bit before we finish up. There's the, the references there. We're not going to dig into that this morning again for the sake of time, but, but what you'll see in a handful of references underneath this explanation for local or visible church are um, several examples of how the church is described in a local context or imperatives that are given that would just be impossible to obey um, within the context of the universal or invisible church. Okay, so I know we've covered that already in this series. We'll cover that some more, so I'm not going to belabor that point. But as we start to think about how the church is formed, it's important that we have these two categories in mind. There's the universal church. How does that start? And that's what we'll dig into first. Number one, 
on your handout, the church, invisible or universal, is formed when Christians are formed. Christians are formed by the gospel when the Holy Spirit calls them out through the instrument of the word. The invisible church is formed when Christians are formed. This is step one in the process of forming the church. It's the formation of a Christian. In order to form, in order to create the church, God starts by creating Christians. Christians are created when they receive and through the power of the Holy Spirit believe the gospel message in accordance with the grace of God. Turn to John chapter 17. You've got some blanks on your handout. I know you're excited. You have an opportunity to fill in some blanks. So you're not, you don't get off super easy today. You've got to follow along. Yes, there's a, a test. Yep, there's a test. Okay, John chapter 17. This is a text that, that Kelly um, preached on last week. John 17, 20. Jesus, after, after praying for his apostles, he, he transitions and starts to pray for his church. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is, not on behalf of these apostles alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Those also who believe in me. So here's, here's your first blank, John 17, 20. Those who believe, this is the church, the future church that Jesus is praying for. Those who believe will believe through the apostles' word. word. They'll believe through the apostles' word. Okay? So when Jesus is praying for his church... Jesus is praying for his future church. He's praying for those who believe. He's praying for those who will believe the word of the apostles. So the apostles were sent with a message, and that message was given to them by Christ. And that message, which is it's, it's consistent throughout apostolic teaching, this is the message through which they would believe. So this church would be this church that Jesus is is praying for would would be generated when they believe, and they would believe when they heard the, the message that the apostles would proclaim. Turn next to Romans 10, 13 through 17. Romans chapter 10, 13 through 17. Such an important text. If, if you were working through Romans, you would have seen in the last couple of chapters, particularly chapter 9, that, that Paul has just made it explicitly clear that if anybody believes, it's, it's going to be because it's a work of God. It doesn't depend on, on man's will or effort, but on God to have mercy. He, he holds out firmly a defense of the sovereignty of God and the character of God. And then you get to chapter 10, and, and he says this in verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Here's your next blank. Faith comes from hearing the... Word of Christ. Yeah, word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Now, look at this text and tell me um, what, what has to happen. So, so Paul says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be a Christian. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be part of this invisible, universal, heavenly, eschatological church. But what has to happen in order for somebody to do that, according to the text? A handful of things. Preaching. Gospel preaching. Mm-hmm. What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm thinking if we follow in verses 13 through 17, what does Paul say is, is required? Did somebody answer over here? Somebody has to be sent? 
So somebody has to preach. In order to preach, they've got to be sent. They have to heed. So they have to, they have to hear this. They have to believe. So, so Paul, Paul gives us a very logical argument here, right? So after having said, this is a work of God for anybody to get saved, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but, but he says that in order for them to call on the name of the Lord, they're going to have to believe, right? And, and in order to believe, they're going to have to hear. So um, now in, in our context, we, we could hear it, we could see it, we could, there's a number of ways that the message could be communicated, but they're going to need the message, right? They're going to have to believe, and they're going to have to believe something in particular. And not just believe, but believe something in particular. You with me? So belief in general doesn't save anybody, okay? but it's belief. You, when you believe a particular message, that's when people are saved. So, so they have to call. They have to... Um, believe. In order to believe, they have to hear. In order to hear, uh, somebody's got to say something, right? So um, we poked fun at this idea last Wednesday in in youth group just a little bit. Um, the idea of you know preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Um, what a what a preposterous suggestion! <laughs> you can't proclaim without proclaiming. You can't preach without preaching. You can't deliver a message without a message. You don't preach the gospel without words. Now, you, you ought to have a life and character and a witness that doesn't undermine the message, that in a sense displays the gospel or displays the effects of the gospel in your life. The Lord is doing a work in the lives of gospel people, and that should, that should be this corroborating testimony alongside the proclamation of the gospel. But nobody gets saved because you pay your bills. Nobody gets saved because you cut your grass. Nobody gets saved because you have a, a well-organized life and, and are nice to people. Some of those things might create opportunities for you to proclaim the gospel. But, but listen, the feet are beautiful, Paul says, because they bring what? They, they bring a message. They bring a message. The feet are beautiful because they bring the news. They bring the message. And, and a message has information. And it's the message and, and that, that of what Christ has accomplished. And, it's, and faith comes from hearing this message. So no message, no faith. Right? No message, no salvation. This is, from our perspective, how a Christian is made. So there's, a, there's obviously a... Um, there's a behind-the-scenes answer. I've alluded to this already. Covenant of redemption, eternity past, God foreknew all who would be saved, and none will be lost. So I'm not putting, I'm not putting the primary cause on people or the proclamation of the gospel, but saying God, who causes this reality to come to fruition, has determined to use an instrument. And from our perspective, this is how a Christian is made and how the universal church is formed. When the elect hear the message and believe that message, that's when the church is formed. Any questions about that so far? Good? Okay. All right. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. After listening to the message of truth, having also believed, then you were sealed. So here, here next blanks. Believers are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit when they listen to the message, message of truth. Okay? When they listen to the message of truth, um, the gospel of salvation, and what? Believe. believe that message. They listen to the message of truth, and they believe that message. So, so this is important. Look at the text. When are the believers sealed in Christ? They're sealed when they believe, they listen to and believe the message. So 
This is not to remove the Holy Spirit from the equation. To say that the church is formed by the Word is not to say that the church isn't formed by the Holy Spirit. So right alongside this truth that that the church is, is formed by the Word, by the proclamation of the gospel, okay, there's no belief without the message. There's the truth that there's no understanding or believing the message apart from the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay? So there's no, there's no universal church, there's no Christian, there's no salvation apart from the gospel message. And there's no understanding, accepting, clinging to the gospel message apart from the Holy Spirit. But it's those things together, when those things are operating together... This is how a Christian is formed. This is how the universal church is formed. Okay, So um, no understanding or believing the message apart from the Holy Spirit. To make this clear, um, let's turn to texts that, that we've been over in um, our sermon series a while back. Turn to John 6. Turn to John 6, and we're going to look at verse 44 and verse 63. Jesus is responding to those who are grumbling against him here, who are doubting him, questioning his authoritative teaching. And in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father, what? Draws them. Okay? No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. The next text is verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. It is the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, who gives life. That's your next blank. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them, and it is the Spirit who gives, gives life. So we're putting these two things together as we're a- answering the question, how, how is the church formed? How does, a, how does a Christian come to be? There has to be the gospel message. If you do not have the message, then you will not have a Christian. No matter what you have, you can have a very nice person, you can have a very religious person, you, you can have somebody who's very committed, very zealous for God or for religious things, but you do not have a Christian if you do not have the message of the gospel. And likewise, you do not have a Christian unless God is doing a work in this person. So to draw, when he says in verse 44, no one comes unless he draws him, it's not to lure, but to effectually draw. You might say drag. You might say drag. So um, I think sometimes we have the picture of um, I like to fish, so this is where this is where my mind goes. So I like fishing for big bass with soft plastic bait, and I like luring them. I like enticing them. I like a presentation that they can't resist, and and that they they may they may or may not bite, but I I want to lure them. It's not drawing in that way, but after the fish bites, and after you set the hook and they're on, and I'm finishing the job now and getting them into the bank, this is what's happening. It's drawing in that sense. It's actually effectually bringing this one to him. This is what he means when he says, no one can come unless God intervenes. And, and God doesn't say, I, I, wish, I wish you would consider. Would you, please think about, would you please think about following me? I don't want to impose my will on you. I, I'm, listen, I'm a gentleman. I won't impose my will on you. Um, that's, not, that's not the kind of rescue that just happened here. The kind of rescue is, is somebody who's dying in desperate condition, doesn't know they need to be saved, does not want to be saved, but God in His mercy saves them anyway. God in His mercy saves them anyway, subdues them and rescues them. This is the drawing, and this is done by the Spirit. Okay? Sometimes people mean well when they say that God wouldn't impose His will on anyone but he lets them decide for themselves. But this betrays a basic misunderstanding of our condition and how Christians get saved. Nobody has the will to or the want to. You guys with me? 
nobody would evaluate the message and depart from divine grace, say, okay, I'll follow you. And this is what makes our salvation entirely of grace. This is what makes grace amazing. While we were rejecting him, while we were enemies, while we were saying, I don't want anything to do with you, he stepped in and he gave us the want to. He gave us the want to. And not only do we not have the want to, but but we lack the ability to even understand and accept the message apart from the Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians 2, I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. Paul says, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, if you're looking at your handout, 1E, um, your first blank there, God reveals the truth through the Holy Spirit. It's the first thing we see in this text. These things were revealed by the Spirit. God reveals the truth through the Holy Spirit. The natural man does not accept the things of God. The natural man does not accept the things of God as a matter of the will. So this is referring to the will. It doesn't accept it. says, no, thank you. But it's worse than that. The condition's worse than that. Um, he cannot understand them. He doesn't accept them, and he cannot understand them. Hey, so we have, to, we have to have the gospel message in order for somebody to be saved, in order for a Christian to come to be, in order for the universal church to be formed. There has to be this life-saving message. But anybody ever preach a message to somebody and they, they say, I'm relatively uninterested in that? Yeah? Anybody ever proclaim the message and get met with hostility? Not just I'm uninterested, but take a hike or worse than that? Right? Um, I, listen, the, I, have, I have way more examples of times that I preached my guts out and given my best in trying to explain the gospel to somebody and they walk away unmoved. They walk away unchanged. They walk away unimpressed. I have way more examples of that than I do um, really cool stories of, of conversions on the street corner. So there are some cool stories that I would love to share sometime. But and and this room's full of cool stories, right? So I'm not I'm not being discouraging with that. I'm pointing out a reality here that the message itself doesn't change anybody, right? Because the natural man will not accept it. And the natural man cannot understand it. Two things have to happen at the same time. Because we've been handed over in sin, this is, this is part of the judgment. If you read Romans 1, this is what we get for our rejection of God. God has handed us over and our foolish hearts are darkened in an unregenerate state. Foolish hearts are darkened, we're handed over, and, and we're in such a state that God must sovereignly initiate and fulfill any inclination in our hearts to believe and obey. That's the extent of our rebellion. God must sovereignly initiate and fulfill any inclination in our hearts to believe and obey. Without divine intervention, without the regeneration brought about by the Holy Spirit, 
we won't accept the message and we can't understand it. Okay? So, we'll put these two things together. The universal church, the invisible church is formed when the Holy Spirit uses the instrument of the word to regenerate and call the elect. The Holy Spirit, universal church is formed, okay, or the universal church is formed when the Holy Spirit uses the instrument of the word to regenerate and call the elect. So the church cannot be formed apart from the Holy Spirit effectually calling God's people through the message of the gospel. So think about that statement. This is um, 1F. The church cannot be formed apart from the Holy Spirit effectually calling God's people through the message of the gospel. Let's take some time now to discuss the implications for how we as individuals and how we as a corporate body should be thinking about the fulfillment of our mission. So if this is true... If the church cannot be formed apart from the Holy Spirit using the instrument of the Word, then um, what should be prioritized? What should not be prioritized? Let's talk about the implications, both in our personal, individual um, attempts to fulfill the mission in the home, in our corporate gathering in the church. What are some of the implications for us? One at a time, please. Yeah, and that could be in any context, but we, we need to understand the Word and strive to have the ability to present the Gospel clearly. Yeah, good. I think uh, relying on the Word to change hearts rather than trying to be effective at it. Mm-hmm. Um, being clever, you know, relying that the Word's going to change hearts, He's going to change hearts through the Gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if we know that this is a work of the Spirit that's going to form a Christian and going to form the universal church, then we're going to, we're going to depend upon Him. And not, that'll, that'll help us avoid being gimmicky, um, being slick, uh, things like that. Yep. What else? Evangelism better be based on the Word. Yeah, what are some alternatives making arguments outside. So the defense of the faith, apologetics, which, which this is a good discipline. This is a discipline that, that um, we, should, we should practice. There are, there's more than one school of thought in apologetics, and, and, but there's, there's one in particular, an evidence-based approach to apologetics, that um, what, what they'll hang their hat on at the end of the day is that I can give you enough reason for belief. Give you enough reason for belief. I can prove to you without ever opening the Bible, that there's a God. I can prove to you, without ever opening the Bible, that the Bible's trustworthy. And so I, I think those proofs, those evidences, are a good thing to know. Um, but the, w- what does the natural man do with that, apart from the Spirit? Yeah. Um, so... Paul says in Romans 1, suppresses it in unrighteousness, and the amplified version says, throw it out the window. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the unregenerate man, we'll see, we'll see a bit of this in our message today in John 18. The unregenerate man looks right at the evidence and says, I don't give a rip about your evidence. Right? Um, we were... We were um, talking about this last last Tuesday in our Ben's small group in the morning. So we were we were on the subject and we were talking about how some of us had seen a a debate. Anybody know who Bill Nye the Science Guy is? Okay, um, Ken Ham Creation Museum. Okay, so there's this there's there's been more than one debate between these two, but this one um, instance that I remember watching was. Bill Nye and is is touring the Ark Museum with Ken Ham, and they're having this walking debate while they um, tour the facility. 
And so it's a bit of a hot mess, but you get to, you get to one point in this discussion where um, Ham is pressing Bill Nye about the origins of life because there's, there's almost nobody that, that denies something like irreducible complexity and, and there's this problem. How does, how do you, how do you end up with DNA from nothing? Okay. And, and Bill Nye is saying it is absolutely ridiculous to suggest that there would have been a God who created these things. And so, okay, ball's in your court. And his suggestion was that there was some sort of collision on Mars and life from Mars somehow ended up here and then evolved. And so, you have, I'll, I'll bet you sometime Adam Jensen could explain all that way better than I could. Um, but here, here's what you have. Um, you have. You have somebody with twice the intellect that um, any three of us put together has. You're a brilliant man. One of the smartest men on the face of the planet. Who doesn't start with an honest question about the evidence. Okay? He's, he's starting with, I will not bow. So any evidence that tells me I should bow is is disregarded. I have a bias toward the evidence. I much prefer aliens from Mars over the uncaused first cause. It doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. But the beginning point, the beginning point is an unconverted heart that that must be changed by the Holy Spirit. And what have we learned so far? Can anybody tell me what what is the instrument that we need to use if we want to see the Holy Spirit change the heart? Yeah, the Word. The Word of Christ. The Word of Christ. I remember um, doing some um, some short-term missions and going door-to-door years ago in towns um, north of here and then engaging with people in public. And we had a group of men doing this and we're knocking on doors and we're preaching the gospel and, and we went to this, went to this festival in Loop City where we're doing this. We're preaching the gospel and, and I am getting involved in every, every debate that I can. Every time somebody has an objection, I'm giving them the facts, I'm giving them the evidence, I'm, I'm doing all of this. And one of the old men that were with us um, came and put his arm around me and said, Roger, you just need to make a beeline for the gospel. What do you mean? You just need to make a beeline for the gospel. You, that evidence is not going to create a Christian. Okay? But those who belong to God, those who belong to Christ, my sheep what? My sheep hear my voice. They're not going to hear, they're not going to hear his voice and anything other than his voice, his word. We've been given a message. Repeat the message. Proclaim the message. So I'm not saying don't get involved in the discipline of apologetics. I think that can be useful. I think, I think you can um, run those plays and say, um, if somebody says, there, I, I just don't trust that the Bible, there's enough evidence to believe the Bible. I hope that you can say two or three things to say, uh, you know what, there's overwhelming evidence, but I don't think you've actually studied. The burden of proof is on you. And, and I think you're actually beginning with, I don't want to accept it. So, <laughs> nobody's been able to discredit it. Your starting point is, I don't want to bow. So um, I'm not discounting the discipline altogether, but I'm saying this is what we hang our hat on. This um, in our evangelism, proclaiming the message. Navigate those conversations to get to the gospel. Okay? How about, um, how about raising kids? What are some of the implications for training up kids? What do we give them? The law. The law? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and what else? And the gospel. And the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we will, we will guide them properly when we give them the word of Christ, when we give them the message. And so I, I, I think we ought to take a very optimistic posture towards our children. I think there's a way that we should... Um, presume upon God's grace in this way that, that he has designed the covenantal structure of the family to be the, a normal vehicle for the propagation of the Christian faith. And so more, more people have historically come to faith. I mean, Billy Graham can't touch what moms with wooden spoons have done in the kitchen telling their kids to follow Jesus. You realize that? 
it's, it's amazing when you think about it. So let's take an optimistic approach, um, but, but they're, they're not any different than the rest of us. They need the gospel. They need the message, so, so give it to them from the time they're little bitty, because this is how God makes a Christian. And hopefully, um, if you're raising kids from the time they're little bitty, you, you don't, uh, you, maybe you'll never see this radical conversion. Uh, maybe you will. Maybe, maybe they'll just always look like a Christian, praise God. He used the instrument of his word from the time they were a little bitty to make a Christian, right? Praise the Lord when that happens. Okay, this has profound implications for us in all of these areas. How about, how about corporate worship? So if the church is formed in this way, if Christians are created and, and the church is born through the proclamation of the gospel, um, what, should, what impact should that have on our corporate worship? Coach? Reading and preaching. An ordinary part of our worship um, ought to be the reading and the preaching of the word. Yeah. Um, how, about in our, how about in our song selection? Adam, would you have anything to say about that? Yeah, how if if the if the church is born, if the church is dependent upon the word, the message of the gospel to be formed, um, we're talking about what are the implications for our corporate worship? Then what would be the implications for our song selection, even the body of music that we we choose? Yeah. It's aligned with the message. So I've been I've been to Christian worship services where there's really really good sounding music that that um, that a, that a Muslim could sing along with, right? Um, we're we're missing the mark if that's the case. No matter how cool it sounds, no matter how um, how much how how worked up it might get us. We need, to, we need to make sure that everything that we're doing on Sunday is saturated with the word, saturated with the gospel message. Okay, The implications for us here are that it, it places on us a responsibility to be uncompromising in our regular proclamation and ministry of the word. If a church is not expositing the scriptures and preaching the word in season and out of season, if it was a true church, it won't be for long. It was a true church. It won't be for long. And here's here's what I mean by that. It it'll be a community of some kind, but it will not be a church because the church is not formed by shared interest. It's not formed by serving one another. It's not formed by rallying around certain ideas. It's formed by the word. It's formed by the word. If you're not preaching the gospel from the pulpit in your church, you are not creating more Christians. You are not building the church, Aaron. They go to church, but they're not really serving or didn't want to be really a part of it. They just go. And they say, um, Christ is not corrupt, but the church is. Mm-hmm. Church is corrupt, Christ is not. That's, and that's what their answer to me was when I was saying, are you involved or are you participating with you know, the community? What would you say your response would be when someone says, Christ is not corrupt, but the church is? So um, Aaron's, Aaron's scenario here is there's you have an individual who says, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with Christ. I love Christ, and I'll attend the church, but I won't commit myself to the church because the church is corrupt. Okay? Um, I, the first place that comes to mind is to go to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where, where Paul would... Here, let me, let me turn there. Paul makes a case that, that there is one body... With many members, chapter 12, verse 12. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So here's, here's his beginning point. Okay? You, everybody, everybody who is a member of Christ is a member of a body, and then he's going to give us some implications for this right here. Um, 15. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body... It is not for this reason less a part of the body. And he's going to go on. If you finish this section, um, he's going to say that you can't, 
one part of the body can't say of another, I have no need of you. Right? So um, this would be true of what you say yourself, what you say about yourself also. So I can't say that some other individual, there's no need for that person in the body of Christ. If they're a Christian, one part of the body can't say of another, they have no need of you. Well, Well, neither could I say that about myself. I can't say if I'm a Christian, if I'm part of the body, that the body has no need of me. You see how that would, that would work both ways? More could be said, but that would be, that would be a starting point. And we're going to touch on, we're not going to get very far into it today at all, but we're going to touch on some more in the weeks ahead, uh, an argument for um, church membership and, and for taking participation in a local church seriously. So, good question. Good question. Okay, so the church is formed by the word, that, so that must saturate all that we do. And we've talked about how in our individual discipleship, if we don't use the word, if we don't use the gospel message in our salvation, in our evangelism, then nobody gets saved, right? No gospel message, no salvation. So um, mercy ministry is not evangelism, right? Mercy ministry is good. Please don't walk out of here and say that Roger's against mercy ministry. I didn't, I didn't say that. So Elliot's posting something on his Instagram. Roger doesn't like mercy ministry. No, it's just, it's just not evangelism. It's, it's pre-evangelism. So if you have a care portal delivery and you deliver bunk beds, nobody got converted. Right? Um, if you go meet a need for somebody, if you deliver a hot meal or take a cold cup of water, nobody's converted. Nobody becomes a Christian yet. Those things can create an opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel and you guys are getting so good at this today, you know that that's the instrument that God uses to create a Christian and form the church, right? And so, so no, no church is formed through mercy ministry alone, but through the proclamation of the gospel. And so in as much as you do mercy ministry and, and look for those opportunities, see them as a means to that end, as a means to the, uh, the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Okay? So... Before we move on from that, let me stop and just ask, are there, are there any questions on this so far? Any questions about what we've been talking about or the implications? You guys are all ready to teach on it. Good. Good. All right. Well, we'll see how you do with the test later. Okay. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but it's, it's, good to, it's good to ask this question. Gee, the last one under number one. So if, if faith comes from hearing the message and the message is the word of Christ, Mike alluded to this earlier, we better have some familiarity with that, right? Okay? We better have some familiarity with that. What that means is if, if I have a different message, if I have a, if I have a different message then I'm not leading people to salvation. If I have a different gospel, I could even persuade people towards something, but I'm not leading people to salvation. So what is the message of the gospel? What content needs to be believed in order for the church to be formed? Yeah, First Corinthians fifteen three and four. That was in my notes too. I'll read that. Okay. I'll start at verse one. Actually, First Corinthians fifteen verse one. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. Um, this, is, this is essential gospel truth, right? Um, is that always sufficient? Romans 3, God let them know that they're not righteous. 
They need to know that they're not righteous. Mm-hmm. Christ, Christ is their sinless. He's the sinless Son of God. He's their atoning sacrifice. So um, we could we could start a conversation um, that could that could end up taking a long time here. What we what would be helpful? And here's part of why I asked that question. If you're struggling to go, where would I start? Like what? What would I say if I'm if I'm if somebody sits down with me and says, "What do I need to believe in order to be saved?" And you're going, "Geez, I don't. I'm not totally sure." Let's rectify that, right? Um, there's there's hope, hopefully you're you're getting a steady diet in the teaching and preaching that we're doing on Sunday morning, but there there are other resources available to help. And if you if you are not sure how you would start that conversation. Let me know, and I would be happy to help you. Um, it wasn't very long ago we used a resource in small groups called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert, and we went through that in this class, and it was a very helpful way of, of explaining the gospel um, with, with just a handful of basic truths. God, man, Christ, response. God is, our, God is our creator. He is holy. He is righteous. He made us in his image to know him and love him, but... Man rebelled and turned away from God and deserves his wrath. God solved that problem by sending Jesus Christ to obey the law and die on the cross to pay for his wrath. And we need to respond in faith. Believe that Jesus Christ is the one who did what he said he did. Okay? So, so if, if, if you're going, I'm not sure, I'm not sure where I would start. Let's, let's talk about that so that your, your work in the mission is centered, is centered on the word. Now, I want to point something out here, okay? This question can get difficult as we get further away from, from the most clear teachings about Christ and what he came to accomplish. Okay, but as Kay pointed out, there are essentials. The gospel's not less than certain facts about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And if those essential facts are distorted, then you don't, you don't have the gospel. Okay? So, um, you, you, but we should recognize that that preaching the full counsel of God and taking every matter in the in the scriptures seriously is is something that that helps us to protect and and um, proclaim the gospel. So working to define and settle a position on everything that the Bible speaks to is one of the ways that that we um, protect gospel essentials. And so here's what I mean: It's possible that apart from declaring the full counsel of God that the church could begin to drift from the meaning of the essentials and end up with a different gospel. Okay? So, anybody ever try to evangelize a Mormon? Anybody ever preach the gospel to a Mormon? If you sit down and tell them that God is the creator of everyone and everything here, they'll say, Amen. Okay? If, if, if you say, we sinned and we deserve his judgment, they'd say, Amen. If you said we need Christ to atone for our sins and he had to be truly God and truly man in order for that to be effective, they would say, Amen. And if you said we need to believe in him, put our faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved, they would say, Amen. Okay? But, but they, so, so you go, oh, we're on the same page. Right? No. No. Um, that's the first two minutes. That's the first two minutes. Yeah. Well, um, how about how about um, from from the book of Abraham and Joseph's famous sermon or Joseph Smith's famous sermon, King Followed Discourse? You have you have supposed that God has been God from all of eternity, but I um, I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you can see God has not always been God. He was once a man like we were, and yeah, you too can become a God. That's a different religion. That's a different religion. They hijacked the gospel and tacked it on to the lie of the serpent in the garden, right? So there is essential gospel truth, but, but depending on the situation, we might need to know more theology to explain the gospel. Paul gives us this, an example of this in Acts 17. Remember when he's preaching on the street in Athens? And, and he's preaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and people are hearing him, and they're like, come to the Areopagus and tell us some more. 
And so Paul goes into the Areopagus, and, and here's what he finds. There's a pantheon of gods, pantheon of gods, and then there's a, an altar with an inscription to an unknown god. And so what it looks like is you have a large group of people who are willing to toy around with the idea of taking Jesus and this message and adding him to the pantheon of gods. And if you read the text, what Paul does is say, oh, no, um, actually, he's the one. There's no other, there, all, all these others are idols. There's no other God. He created everyone and everything and requires that all men everywhere repent. Right? Elliot, your hand was going up. Um, so you're, this is a, this is definitely a related subject. You're saying you have somebody who confesses faith, but there's not evidence in terms of the way that they live their life. Right. So, um, this, this would be, this would be a, a bigger conversation about, um, the evidence or reasons for assurance. And so if somebody has heard the gospel message and somebody has believed, genuinely believed, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And then we have ample scripture that teaches us things like James says, faith without works is it's not a living faith. So it's, it's actually like a demonic faith. So there's a, there's a kind of faith that the demons have where they know that he's God and they know the final outcome. So they know the truth and they agree that the truth is true. And yet, their trust, they haven't put their trust and they haven't been changed, transformed by this. And so you say the evidence of grace is believing this message, but a related subject is an evidence of grace is a transformed life. And so you're saved by grace through faith, it's not of your works, but, but God prepared works in advance for us to walk in. Yep. Adam? Yeah, you might find out that you would you would fill out the test in an orthodox fashion, but your street level theology is really unorthodox, right? The way you treat your wife, what you do in private, the the way you think God will deal with you is is really demonstrating that you're out of orthodoxy, and that's actually a, maybe a theological issue. Okay, we're out of time. Let me um, do this. I wanted to get to number two just a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a point um, real quick because we're going to have time in weeks ahead to address this. So the universal church is created when somebody hears the gospel, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit causes them to believe. Message, spirit, Christian, universal church, seated in the heavenlies. But that does not create a local church. Local visible church is formed when Christians commit to be a church together. That commitment is made through baptism the Lord's Supper, and the regular proclamation of the gospel, which united them to Christ. Okay? So a local church, a local church is formed when Christians commit to the proclamation of the gospel. If people gather and don't proclaim the gospel, they are a community, they are a club, they are something other than a church. Okay? No gospel, no local church. Okay? Local church is formed when believers are baptized. This is how the Lord draws a line around his people. And a local church is formed when believers partake of the Lord's Supper. This is how we reaffirm that line that's drawn around the people. A lot more needs to be said about that, but that's a teaser for weeks ahead. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your word, that it is sufficient and authoritative. And we thank you for the reminder that we have today that in our, our advance of the mission and in our labor, we can trust you to create Christians and form your church by by entrusting ourselves to your message. So Lord, help us to be faithful to, to the gospel personally in our evangelism, in our parenting, in our conversations with one another, in 
our corporate worship in all that we do. Let it be saturated with the word and let that be our confession of faith, our demonstration that, that you are the one who will change lives and transform a people and build your church through the ministry of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.